0: Greetings all, and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. It's good to be with you all again. I know I, uh, I missed a week, but there was a work issue we won't talk about. But let me say a belated happy Independence Day to everybody. I love Independence Day. I love Fourth of July weekend, even though it's usually hot. But thankfully, we're back together. So let's continue our journey through the book of Job. Now, in the last episode... All we had were questions. Remember, uh, the question that Hasatan asked God in the scenes in heaven, would Job still be faithful if he stopped blessing him and let him suffer a bit? Which is really an accusation against humanity, right? Human beings are not capable of faith for nothing. And we had the question from both Job and his wife in the scenes on earth. Since Job is innocent, why is he suffering? And can he continue to be faithful to God in light of this strange development? And we saw that these two questions are connected, right? They both pretty much ask the same thing. Can we have faith for nothing? Can human beings worship and obey God and trust God simply because he's God? Can we have faith in him because he's God, not for anything he does for us? Is God worthy of worship only by virtue of what he does for us? Is he capable of creating a creature with freedom and independence and the moral and spiritual maturity to worship him purely based On his own intrinsic worth, the fact that he's God. And maybe ultimately we're asking what sort of covenant is really possible between God and humanity. Well, we got some answers last time. We know from the book of Job that that God actually bet on us. And if you've finished reading Job, then you should have the sense that the book says yes to this question. And we still have a ways to go to get through this journey. So in this episode, we'll take a look at the cycles of dialogue between Job and his three friends. It happens in Job chapters 3 through 27. It's long. It's repetitive. But in this episode, what we really want to talk about is the, the kind of conversation that Job has with his friends, the advice that he gets, and what that really means, right? So as you go through these chapters, what you see is this pattern that forms. Where Job whines, his friends respond, then he responds to their response, then he whines, then they respond, and that goes on and on and on and on and on. right? Let me just take a minute before we get too deep into this, because Job's friends usually take a beating whenever anybody studies or teaches Job. And to, to be honest, they deserve it. But before we beat them up too much, I think they do deserve some credit. I want to read Job 2, 11 to 13 real quick. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all his troubles, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, as I said, they're going to take a beating, but I want to be fair, right? When these guys hear of their friend's troubles, they come and they sit with him. They weep over his distress. They sit with him for seven days. Now, that's true friendship, right? So I at least want to give him credit where credit's due. Where they go wrong is in the advice they give him and the theology that their advice reveals. And if you were able to slog your way through chapters 3 through 27, then you should have a gist of their advice, right? But let me give you a sampling. Chapter 4, Eliphaz says, think now who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Pretty straightforward. Only the bad people have bad things happen to them. And in chapter 8, Bildad says, Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children sinned against him, he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty... If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. Right? I mean, obviously, all you really need to do is apologize to God and he'll straighten things out for you. And in chapter 11, Zophar says, You say my conduct is pure and I am clean in God's sight. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for wisdom is many-sided. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. See, through these chapters, Job's friends explain that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And if Job is being punished by God, it can only mean that he has sinned and needs to confess his sin, right? And I kind of alluded to this theology in the last episode. Job's friends are staunch adherents to what I call the theology of retribution. It's what we usually think, Even if we don't talk about it out loud, good people are rewarded and wicked people are punished, right? It's simple. It's fair. It's what we expect in this world. And frankly, it's what we expect from God, who is, in this theology, supposed to be fair. And when things don't make sense and we cry out why, we reveal that we sort of default to this way of thinking, right? Things really ought to be fair. God ought to be fair. But in the last episode, we were confronted by the possibility that God is not fair. We were faced with the proposition that God doesn't concern himself with human measures of fairness. Now, do you remember the movie Amadeus? It's based on a fictional legend about two great composers. It's not historically accurate, but it's a really good movie. And there's a scene in that movie where we see Salieri express unfairness. He realizes that Mozart is unworthy to be God's musical voice on earth. And he can't accept that God uses Mozart instead of him. Things are not as they should be. And Salieri not only laments that, but he decides to take matters into his own hands in order to correct what is not right. Job's friends have a similar problem. Remember, these men were so moved by Job's suffering that they wept and tore their clothes. They do care about him, yet they persist in accusing him of sin. Why? Well, they can't face the possibility of God's unfairness any more than Salieri could. They are just too afraid of what it might mean for them. And so they cling desperately to their theology of retribution. It's what they know. It's, It's all they know. And since it's all they know, they refuse to let it go. And since Job is suffering, their theology permits no other cause except that he is wicked and is being punished for his sin. Now when things go bad for us, we lose a job or a loved one gets sick or God forbid something worse happens, we usually don't have our friends come over to tell us we're sinners and to repent, right? We might cry out to God, maybe just in our own thoughts or maybe not. And that crying out usually includes the question, why? Why is this happening, right? But I want to point out Job's situation's even worse. The problem with his ongoing argument with his friends is that well, he has also believed in the theology of retribution. He, too, has believed that the good are blessed and the wicked are punished. At the beginning of Eli's first speech, in chapter 4, verses 3-4, to four, Eli says, See, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who are stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. See, these guys have gone to others who are suffering with their friend Job, and have given those folks the same advice. This was Job's theology too. But now he's suffering the worst kind of disaster. He has lost everything, his stuff, his family, his health, his respect, his self-respect, his position. Remember, he's sitting on an ash pile outside the city, scraping his boils with a broken piece of pottery, while his closest friends tell him it's all his fault. But he knows he has not sinned against God. So in the midst of all his loss, Job has also lost something else. He has lost his theology. His ideas about God are blown. What he thought he knew about God is proven wrong, and he's desperate to find a new way of understanding God. And keep in mind, we don't have to speculate about Job's righteousness because three things are true. First, the author tells us that Job is righteous. Second, God tells us that Job is righteous. And third, Job tells us over and over that he's innocent. So we have no doubt about this man. He is innocent, and he's suffering anyway. We also don't need to speculate over who's causing this. The text tells us that God is the cause, right? The Satan questions the motive of faith for all humanity. And to prove the issue, God submits Job to suffering. God himself accepts responsibility for the suffering of Job. In chapter 2, verse 3. So we know Job is innocent, but now he's suffering, and God has permitted it. Consequently, Job needs to find a new way to talk about God. He needs a new language about God. His friends are too afraid to leave behind the language that they know, however confusing, suspicious, or downright wrong it may be. They're afraid of what it would mean if their theology is proven wrong. But Job is in a place where the old ideas don't work. He needs a new way to talk about God. And so Job cries out to God. He accuses God. He longs for a hearing before the judge so that the judge himself might answer him concerning his dilemma and the judge's involvement in that dilemma. He cries out for death, for rest from suffering. And his cry reminds us of Psalm 22. Now, I'm guessing that most of us know Psalm 23 by heart. We can recite it and we hold it near and dear as a comfort in the storm. But I'd wager that fewer of us are quite as familiar with Psalm 22, but oh man, it's so crucial to all of us. So let me read an excerpt and see if you can hear Job's lament in these words. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. But I am a worm and not a human, scorned by others and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads commit your cause to the lord let him deliver let him rescue the one in whom he delights yet it was you who took me from the womb you kept me safe on my mother's breast on you i was cast for my birth and since my mother bore me you have been my god do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help many bulls encircle me strong bulls of bashan surround me they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion i am poured out like water And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing they cast lots. You see, in Psalm 22, we hear the lament... Of a person who is in deep suffering. The lament of someone just like Job. But think about this. What's the one thing you find in common between the psalmist and Job? It seems they're both believers. These are the laments of a suffering believer. This is the lament of a person with deep faith in God who's crying out in the midst of suffering. Now, even if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, you probably still heard some familiar words in there. Words like, all who see me mock me let the Lord deliver you. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried out like a potsherd. For my clothing, they cast lots. Hint, hint, hint. And if those words are not familiar, let me go back and, and read a verse I left out. Verse one, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Yep. These are the words of Jesus as he sung on the cross. The great uh, theologian and historian Gustavo Gutierrez wrote something extraordinary about the 22nd Psalm. He said, Jesus did not write it. He inherited it. You see, Jesus inherited this Psalm. Jesus inherited the suffering of all mankind when God the Son took on full and complete humanity in order to remake it. And Psalm 22 becomes a connector between the suffering lament of the innocent Job and the suffering cries of the perfectly innocent Jesus. Jesus takes up the lament of suffering humanity and he cries before God in his perfect suffering. And each of us, by virtue of his suffering, participate vicariously in his lament before the Lord. And so it's Jesus himself who begins to create this new way of talking about God. It was Jesus who showed us the freely bestowed love of the ancient of days. It was Jesus who shattered the argument of the Pharisees that God gave his love in exchange for our purity. And it was Jesus who entered into and transformed our lament as he suffered on the cross. And we realized that as a result of the freely given love of God, we are made capable of the free worship of God. We are empowered to worship him freely without cost or obligation and without the condition of blessing. We can worship God because he is God and not merely for what we receive at his hand. So in Jesus, these two truths from Job were joined and inseparable. God loves us before we do anything to earn his love. He loves us freely, without condition, and all we need to do is receive it. But we can also trust God freely, without condition. We are free to believe in God just because God is God, even if things in the sin-damaged world don't go our way. The theology of retribution is dispelled. Faith for nothing is now a real human possibility. The two are joined forever in Jesus. And now we're able to hear the new language about God, and I'm telling you, it's all over the New Testament. Philippians 1.21 says, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Our new language about God says that life itself is Jesus. He indwells us, interpenetrates us. Jesus, as he said in John 17.21, is our life. Our life is Jesus, and so the question of blessing and suffering is no longer a question of faith. We have assurance that even death has been killed by God so that what would have been the end is now the beginning of true blessing. So how can we lose when to live is Christ and to die is gain? Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm now invincible. No matter how sinful, weak, or incapable I seem to be, I have all of God living inside me in the person of the Holy Spirit. What can't I do? Even when I doubt myself, I know I can because God can, and he is living in me. Therefore, whatever he gives me to do or to bear, I know I can. Philippians 4.11 says, I am content no matter what the circumstances. What, even Job's circumstances? Yes. You see, this new way of speaking about God throws circumstances out the window. When it comes to faith, obedience, The love of God and our ability to persevere the circumstances are now merely a part of the landscape. They're no longer a determining factor. The theology of retribution has been replaced by the reality of the risen Christ dwelling in me. Therefore, I can be content, no matter what's going on. In Acts 4.20, the disciples are threatened by the religious leaders not to speak in public about Jesus. So, what do they do? What do they tell the men who tortured and killed their master? They say, we cannot keep from speaking, even if you beat us. I see this new language about God says that he is worthy of praise and we will do what he commands, not in spite of the circumstances, but period. We'll do what he commands. End of sentence. In Acts 5.41, the disciples are actually beaten for testifying to the risen Christ. And as they leave that place, they rejoice at being found worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. What? What? They rejoice at being found worthy to suffer that beating for Jesus. They rejoice for their suffering. They rejoice. This is new language about God. This is language that receives both blessing and suffering at God's hand with rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. What kind of mental power or positive attitude or altered perception or New Age spirituality or Scientological whatnot can match the reality of being content with suffering? Buddha says, if you have a need, you can't fail. Erase the need. Jesus says, rejoice even in need. Who can offer the reality of being content with hardship besides Jesus Christ, the living God dwelling in us? There is no human power that can match it. This is our new language about God. This is the language of a God who suffers with us and for us. This is the language of a God who is intimately acquainted with our suffering. He knows the smell of sickness and the taste of death. He did not find it sufficient to watch us suffer and die as a spectator. Rather, to make all this real and to give us life in him, he became us. He suffered with us. He cried out to the Father in the lament of the innocent sufferer. And that's what I hope we see after all of Job's lament, after 24 chapters of his crying out to God. Jesus changed the way people thought and talked about God. His very presence, his example, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, these historical events give us a new way of knowing and talking about God. Now, I want to throw something out here because a lot of times I hear people talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of the things that seminary gave me was a new mantra, right? The birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And and I think sometimes we forget that last piece. His ascension is pretty important, right? Because Jesus is now our eternal high priest. This is what Hebrews tell us. He is forever continually pleading our case before the throne of God. Just want to read you two quick passages from Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 15-16 says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace in to help in time of need and hebrews 7:24 to 25 says he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently He is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You want new language about God? How about this? No matter what you suffer, Jesus is constantly offering intercession for us before the throne of God. Always. Forever. You are never, ever apart from God, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like. Jesus' connection to both us and God means that nothing, nothing can separate you from God's love. Not even suffering that you don't deserve or understand. Look, life's hard and then we die. No matter how you slice it, this seems to be the case. But the story of Job beginning to end shows us that there's more to it than that. The bumper sticker doesn't cover the reality of a God who loves us. And in our suffering, we can still find him, trust him. Yeah, and rely on him to walk us through the dark valleys. And I know it's easy to say when you're not in the valley. It's nearly impossible to say when you're at the bottom of it. So maybe we just need better friends than Job, right? I I recently went through some tough times. Last year was brutal. But I had a friend. I had a friend who came and said all the new language about God to me. Maybe we just need better friends than Job. So when we end up in the valley there's going to be somebody there to remind us who God is and remind us of the fact that we actually can do all things in him. Amen. All right. I'm going to pray for you now. And as always, don't forget, keep your eyes on what you're doing. Keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on the kids. Pay attention to what's going on. Just, just let your hearts pray with me now. Father, this, um, the last couple years have been rough. Lord, you, you know what my 2020 looked like. You know there are people out there where COVID wasn't the worst thing that happened. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. A lot of hurt, a lot of heartache. There's things that happen to us every day that don't make sense. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And sometimes things just go bad. Lord, it's hard to understand why it's hard to understand where you are in those moments and why you're not protecting us i thank you for this great book of Job. we're not we're not at the end yet we haven't seen it all yet lord but but you are speaking to us even now that that nothing will ever separate us from you we don't fully understand yet we don't have answers to the wise but lord we're on this journey together and we pray that you will continue to walk us to the truth we're going to trust you as we go and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. That's it for this episode. I will see you soon. Peace.